Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Welcome to another episode of Once a DJ. This week we're talking to Canadian battle DJ Jake Vechtmeyer. If you're into scratching, then you'll know him. And if you're not, then just to give you his potted history, he's a seven-time world champion DJ across a range of formats and categories. He's a former ranked tournament poker player, and in my eyes he's one of the kings of winding people up on the internet on message boards, which is where we first met. And now as an online community leader, DJ battle organiser, teacher and mentor. Jake, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Even better now that I'm here. Oh, he's saying all the right things. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, I really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. And yeah, so just for the listeners' context, I know a bit of your story. I, I, I saw quite a rich part of your development as a DJ. Yeah, so, through the magic of the internet. Yeah, through the internet. And I'm also aware of the genesis of that, but I wasn't around for the genesis of that. So I think what would be really good to start off with is just what was your introduction to DJing? Okay, as a background to just myself, my sort of childhood, uh, I grew up kind of in, in rural uh, Ontario. Um, there's no DJing, there's no hip-hop or anything, but somehow through the internet, me and my friends uh, found out about hip-hop. Basically, when I, I went to high school um, was when I started to like hear about the four elements and stuff, and and a lot of my friends were getting into uh, breakdancing, um, and I was trying to get into breakdancing too um and that's no good <laughs> that's <laughs> so often the tale isn't it try one thing you know good at it try another yeah it's the one of the classic like dj uh stories for like hip-hop djs i feel like is like they tried to rap or they tried to break dance or tried yeah. to write graffiti or something and it didn't work but yeah i, I uh sort of like got into hip-hop in, in terms of like uh learning about it i guess the culture and stuff um and and somehow like even before i even knew about hip-hop i actually like got into music production like when i was like 12 or something um through like i don't know if you remember like the dance ej software and stuff like ej is like a yeah yeah it's basically some like a almost like a toy like music production software uh like it just came with a bunch of loops and stuff but it was enough to make me like understand how music was made so it's already sort of like into music production and then learning about the four elements and then learned about the dj um and then at, at some point i don't even know what i was looking for or what but i came across a couple of videos on limewire uh of cuber and mixmaster mike and and 
uh, and they're scratching is like their showcase at DMC um, way back in like 95 or something. Is that the one where the uh, Mixed Master Mike uses that death row? Yes, exactly. That's exactly the one. Um, oh, God, it's so good. Yeah, that's my favorite part too. And it it's it's funny, like, I, I still remember when I saw, like, Mixed Master Mike specifically, more so than Cuber at the time, was, like, who, like, blew my mind and who I was, like, really into. And, like, I, I, I remember, like, watching that video and I didn't even understand what the equipment did. I thought, like, they had like buttons that they pressed and like you held a button and it would do like a certain scratch sound or like I didn't, I had no idea. So basically I, I asked my dad, uh, like I showed him the video and I'm like, what, what are these things? Like, what are they touching and stuff? And he said, Oh, those are turntables. Um, and then it, it just like was pure luck pretty much that I was, I was really into it for that short period of time and it could have just been like the next week or next month i would have been into something else but i went to a local pawn shop and they happen to have like a gemini dj in a box um that someone had returned and which like makes no sense like it's it's such a weird thing to be in that in the country essentially like that um. there's a, a, a set of turntables and stuff terrible ones but a set nonetheless um <laughs> at the pawn shop and it was like right when i was like like learning about it and stuff um so i like uh took my it's probably my life savings from working on the farm at that time i worked on a garlic farm saved up all my money uh and i bought the dj in a box and that's how i started and even it's it's weird like how much that video as well as that setup like still to this day like it, it formed how i i dj because a lot of like turntablists recognize this after watching me for a little bit, but like I have the up faders on the wrong sides is one of the main things. Like yeah. I, I, my right up fader does my left channel. Um, my left does my right and I do hamster cross fader, but my up faders are switched. I've always played like that. And, um, and it all goes back to like the only video that I had as a reference, like a visual reference for a long time um, was that, that cuber mix master mic one there's one other cuber one um but uh they didn't have a hamster switch so they plugged the turntables into the wrong sides yeah and for a couple of years before i found like message boards and stuff and i didn't have anybody to talk to i was like uh just sort of making up like reasons in my head like oh like like for i i remember one of the things i believed was i i thought that in order to scratch like you had to hook your turntables up into the wrong sides like that was just <laughs> and if you wanted to mix you put them in the right way i didn't know about hamster and regular i didn't like understand any of that stuff i was just like oh and like when i saw people scratching like on the line switch or whatever like i thought uh again like i thought like uh you know i didn't realize like mix master mike was transforming really really fast um i i thought that he just like like held it down and it had like a special effect that would chop up it, the sample really quickly or something yeah like i was just making up sort of like stories of of how things worked because i had no one to talk to to ask or anything yeah i mean for the listeners just to unpack this a little bit this is like a legendary showcase by two of the best djs ever to ever to compete and ever yep. to Ever to touch a turntable, they're they're both absolutely incredible. Mixed master marks in my all time yep. top three. Um, 
So that, yes, so you're not just trying to unpick very basic scratching there. You're trying to unpick at that time so the, some of the most complicated and some of the most abstract stuff that was out there without having any of the sort of entry points. Because I got Qbert's um, DIY, like scratch tutorial DVD. So, yep. so I, I was quite the opposite. I had the step one, you do this. Step two, you do this. I wouldn't have wanted to try and unpick it like you did. Right. Yeah. I, and I got that eventually, but it was, it was like years, like, um, like I, I probably had <clears throat> at least like a couple years, um, uh, or maybe it, it could have just been one year, but it, it is a while where it was just like, I had those videos. Um, I didn't even know what DMC or battling was for, for a bit. Um, like I got started like basically just from those, those couple of videos. And then Kid Koala was a big, um, influence because uh as a canadian he uh his music was played on the radio and stuff like not like not pop music stations but our national like you know probably equivalent to bbc we have the cbc yeah so um yeah he's played on radio i knew about him um i i loved his music i was into ninja tune and stuff too um but i listened to him before i knew what turntables were how he was making that music and yeah. it was retrospectively that that I sort of understood it. But <clears throat> yeah, for a while I didn't have many references. And yeah, my main reference was that video. But that video at the time was like about a decade old or something. And like in terms of DJ technology, that was a big jump. That decade, there's a lot of stuff happened. So I was like learning from stuff that was kind of ancient at that point. Even though it was very high level technique but yeah the the technology was like primitive yeah you, you know you think about the the evolution in even just crossfades on a mixer yeah so so to get those quick entry points um so effectively as a dj you have to do a lot less to get the same effect yes yeah and like you know they had switches to just change the the reverse the crossfader and stuff now you don't have to hook it up wrong but at that time they didn't. And yeah, was, they weren't even using like Vestac mixers or something because those came out like a year later than the yeah. video I had. So, yeah. So from that point, was the next step then for you finding the, finding message boards? It probably was. It was, um, yeah, definitely in that time. Um, I remember the first message board for any DJ stuff that I stumbled on was Future Producers is called. Um, <clears throat> and I think I was aware of that one already because like I said, I'd, I'd been producing a, a little bit um, before I knew about scratching or DJing. And they had like a DJ, like just one sub forum or something like that. But it was through there where eventually people like um, who I was talking to give me links or whatever to other websites they're more scratch focus more like turntablism stuff like that sure so what's that about 2003 four something like that i think it was around 2003 like christmas 2003 or something when i got my gemini dj in a box yeah because for, just for the just for anyone listening with the message boards if you're not aware of them it's effectively how, how would you best describe a message board? <laughs> for people who don't know what message boards are, like for Zoomers? 
Um, well, nowadays it, it's we have Discord and Reddit are are somewhat similar. Yeah, um, they're somewhat similar, except message boards were are like um, as long as someone's replying, the topics are staying at the top, so you get more longer running uh, um, discussion. I guess um, it's not like like even like like Discord is closer to like just a chat room. And then Reddit is sort of in between where it's like a message board, but uh, the topics are, are constantly falling off the front page. And so yeah. uh, you never really have like a, a, a topic of discussion for more than like a day or something. Whereas on a message board, it could be for years, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So message boards were where I first met you. Is I think the nice thing with message boards as well is that that you do get these real communities on them and it's almost like mm-hmm. maybe like an online family in in terms of you get this community people are there for each other but you also get a ridiculous amount of bickering and falling out in politics as well oh yeah 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 for sure yeah because yeah that's that's the thing with that is different about message boards is that they were a little bit more like personal and you got to know people's personalities um whereas like uh on something like reddit or or Discord, it, it's it's sometimes a little bit more like fleeting, where you, you know, you make a a discussion and it's talked about for a little bit, and the next one like uh, might not have any of the same people that are talking about it. Whereas on a message board, it's like you know you're you're like talking to the same people every day for for years, and like yeah, and like yeah, I you know met um like friends. Uh, who I was friends with for years, like, like John first best example, who we knew each other for like, man, um, eight years, I guess, before we actually met probably like seven or eight years, I would guess. Um, and you, you're probably this around the same time. Like I'm in, like, I probably got on DV around, I don't know, 2005, 2006 or something like that. I would guess. Yeah. Pretty similar Um, time then. Yeah, and so and but then the first time I went to the UK for the World Finals was 2012. Um, so like, yeah, you're talking to people for for years and years, um, and yeah, it's it's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, I've I've stayed in touch with a lot of people from Digital Vertigo, mm-hmm. aka DV. Yeah, for the for the context of the interview, but um, so something I really liked about. Digital Vertigo, because that's the only one of these message boards I really spent a lot of time on. Yeah. Was seeing people's journey, seeing people develop, seeing people share their progress, little battle competitions, collaborative mixtapes. Just yep. just this this um community that fostered growth. I just think it's such a beautiful thing. And it's it's a time that really helped elevate things and brought a lot of people together. Yeah, it's it's weird. <laughs> like um when you look back and you see like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who came from there and like, uh, ended up doing stuff. But I feel like, like at the beginning, like is a lot of, is more like organic and stuff where, you know, people weren't producing any sort of content or making music or, or competing. Like everybody was talking before that they did that stuff, you know, like, cause I remember like, like too tall, was on there who's on unit now and like mm. a, a very well-known producer Lorne as well and pretty much like famous producer 
Um, yeah, he's doing a lot of sync music and stuff. That is doing really well, isn't he? I, yeah, as far as I know, yeah. Um, I mean, like, yeah, he's got some some tracks with tons of views and and yeah, tours and everything. And uh, and I remember, like, on Digital Vertigo, like, I like back before he'd done anything, I I like messaged him and it was like like how does the eq work or something like with production you know like just like asking like i just remember these like super like basic organic types of things yeah there were some really talented people um, and really humble people as well but coming on to humility and attitude and things <laughs> yeah what yeah. i really enjoyed seeing i i, I wasn't one of those humble people was <laughs> But uh, you say that, but what I what I really enjoyed was when people would post files, and you had this phase where you would do like school grade style marking for them. Yeah, and yeah, all your I points remember. were really valid, but people would get so wound up by it at times. Yeah, it was just hilarious. Well, like to put in perspective, I was when I was on the on the boards, uh, so to speak. Um, I was like in high school, you know, yeah. like I was like, like at the start at least. And then like, you know, through, through like university, but I was like pretty fairly young, but talking to like older people. And I was like, definitely had a certain amount of like, uh, youthful, um, arrogance, I guess. Or like, I, like, I, I thought I was really sick when I was like 17. Um, and so I was like. Uh, probably being more critical than warranted, perhaps. But uh, yeah, but it, I don't know. That's sort of was that's always been a trait I've had. Where, for better or worse, I I feel like I've always been very like analytical and critical about like mu music and art and and turntablism. But not just other people's though. It's all also my own. Mm. Like I'm super i feel like that's like something that i don't know can maybe hopefully like helps uh justify it to some people is that i don't just like criticize and hate on other people's stuff but it is actually like how i feel about my own stuff as well like i'm i'm always like i feel like one of the, the bigger reasons why i ended up being able to do well in like competitions and stuff is because I'm I'm just really I was always really really critical of everything and and going like revising and and that and then so, sometimes like you know carrying forward uh to like teaching and and when I do my own battles and twitch streams and stuff which we'll probably talk about more but mm. uh carrying on to that now um I sort of like use that same like critical eye I guess or like I I come at it from the same perspective and I sort of try and like hold people to the same standard, I guess. But this is what I was going to come on to. Like you used to do that and it, for me it wasn't, and it was quite harmless, but oh it was also valid. Like I didn't see things there and think that's not valid. I saw valid points, but people getting wound up by them. And it's yeah. like, if you're putting things out there and you want to grow, you need to, you need to keep your ears open and, and be ready to hear things that you might not necessarily want to hear. That's, likewise, when you'd put things on there, you would take on people's feet. You would take on board, sorry, people's feedback. So it's like you, yeah. you weren't being a hypocrite there. 
Right. Yeah. I th- I think like I I guess it, people have different ways of like coping with with criticism and and um you know I'm not saying I was always the most tactful with it, but um, but I know that some of like the criticism that I got and the feedback I got when I was coming up some of the stuff that stuck with me and probably helped me the most was like just people being really blunt and honest and like not sugarcoating it or anything just telling me like you know like you're completely offbeat like it doesn't sound good it's not it's it's like sounds like trash basically um i remember like one, one of this is a different message board but one of my like the most formative uh pieces of of feedback I ever got was um, I sent a, a, a beat juggle I made um, to uh, DJ Slice, who is 1997 US champion. Yeah. He, he got top two or three in the world at least once, maybe twice. Um, he's someone who did beat juggling who I really <clears throat> looked up to. I sent him one of my juggles and, and his feedback, he gave more than this, but but I think like the first, what he let out with was it sounds like you've never even beat juggled before in your life. <laughs> and that, that was like, and it like crushed me because that was like one of my idols. And, and in my mind, I was like, oh, he's going to love it or whatever. But he's like, just let out with that. I remember he gave me a list of like a few routines to, to study essentially. He's like, go watch these, uh, learn them like so that you can do them note for note and then try to make something. Like basically it was like, at that time, especially, um, and even still to this day, like, like for beat juggling, at least there's not really like a, as much of like a series of techniques or tutorials to follow. So you sort of, the best thing you can do is just like watch the greats and try to copy them kind of thing. So he's like kind of giving me like, here are the fundamentals, like watch these, emulate them. And yeah. Yeah, for anyone listening, just for reference, beat juggling is when you'll take usually two of the same record and play parts of them to effectively live remix them. Um, there's some incredible people that do this. Um, if you check out like the Executioners, for example, yeah, you're sort of like um, I I think of it as like you're you're using um, you're using two copies of a beat on each turntable, but you're treating it as one. You're just treating it as a sample. So you're yeah. sampling a beat and you're making a new beat from that. Um, it's it's it kind of, it's a lot like, a, I don't know if this is a better reference at all, but uh, like finger drumming, like when people take like a sampler and they chop up like a, a existing drum beat and they, and they re-drum it to make a, a brand new drum beat. So it sounds like real drums. Yeah. Sort of the same idea with beat juggling, just one turntables. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Wunter DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Wunter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from wunterdj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, 
look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides, and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I mean, go, going through that, you, I mean, there was one time that I gave you feedback on a juggle. I think it might have been a lady, was it Lady Sovereign? Oh man, yeah, I th- I think that could have been the juggle I sent to Slay. Oh no, no, it wasn't. It was, I think the Lady Sovereign was like a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I don't want to say that I'm fully responsible for your success. No, you can say that. You can. Oh, I am fully responsible for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was easy. Yeah. Um, it's funny that I know the exact routine. That was around like 2008, I think. I, I still, like at that point, I still feel like I didn't, know how to be juggle i didn't understand it yet i remember having sort of like an epiphany a little bit later and starting to understand things a little bit more and be able to actually like do the things i was seeing on video but that was still like like i didn't i i had a few like tricks sort of but i didn't really know what i was doing yet i think the the really difficult thing about beat juggling and i appreciate this is probably going a bit granular for a lot of people right but i think that the interesting thing is it with it you've just got to think you've got all these little techniques and patterns that you can do but you've got to think holistically about how you're building a composition as well mm-hmm. it's a super complicated art especially to do well it's yeah it's super weird because you're usually a couple bars of an existing song and you're using that and only turntables in a mixer to create a brand new song is sort of the idea so you're using a very limited amount of sound and you've got to stretch that really really far and that's yeah it's one of the toughest things for for people to do and understand even now like you know 2023 i feel like people still don't totally understand like how to do it properly and stuff yeah i think if anyone is a bit curious about what we're talking about if they go on youtube and just look for blind alley dj babu they'll find one of the best beat juggles there is that's kind of benchmark. That's yeah. That's one of the um, that was one of the ones that that uh, Slice gave me as, to study. That's definitely one of the uh, one of the goats. So, yeah. when you were progressing, then so were you entering like local DJ battles or anything, or were you just waiting to try and do the big ones? Um, I entered a couple local dmcs around that time like that lady sovereign juggle was was from one of those i think um you're welcome and yeah and uh i entered like one college one um but in general in canada at that time the turntablism and battling and stuff had just begun to sort of cool off um more i remember like hearing about events like that had happened in the years i was like starting but i didn't know about yet Uh, like i i heard about a lot of stuff but then when i actually got to doing it things were like fairly few and far between so there there i did 
a local battle that wasn't DMC and then a couple local DMCs. Um, and then in Canada, DMC actually like just d- disappeared. Like the organizer, like just, uh, uh, I, I don't think anybody still knows to this day what I've, I've only heard rumors that he like moved to Antarctica or something like, like nobody knows what happened. He just sort of took off. And so there's, um, at least two full years, almost three, I think, where there's no, uh, competitions at all in Canada, no, no turntablist events. Like it was like, uh, so the, the dark ages, I guess. Um, yeah, that does ring a bell actually. I think, I think it cooled off a lot in Britain as well. I feel like around like maybe 2006 to 2010, like worldwide was, was, like I think of that as sort of the dark ages in general, where is is sort of uh, like competitions hadn't allowed Serato yet, um, and that was I think a big thing holding them back. And then the whole portable turntable thing hadn't came about yet either. And those were were a couple things that sort of sparked more interest again. Yeah, um, so I, su- I suppose that was the era then when people were getting custom records made, wasn't it? And they were battling with yes. their own customs. So Exactly, yeah, yeah. The, the sort it's of almost a bit elitist there, isn't it? Be- because you've got to be able to get these things pressed up yourself. It's not a cheap thing to do, to get them pressed up. No. Um, practice to the point of battering them, get some more pressed up. Yeah. So my first world title in 2012 was on, was in the vinyl, like, D- DMC supremacy vinyl only category and I did dub plates and like honestly that title probably cost me like around two thousand dollars like up front mm. because you have to I, I didn't even get dub plates I got actual records pressed so it's like a longer process better quality but instead of cutting them on a lathe I actually got 50 records pressed and a run of records is not cheap even even if you yeah. get if you, if you get one record pressed, it's probably cost like seven hundred dollars or something for that one record. So like, yeah, it's uh, it wasn't a good thing in general. Yeah, but so but, yeah. So now now you mentioned money. Yeah. Um. Another <laughs> another part of your journey that I'm aware of, only on a high level, not in a lot of detail, mm-hmm. is that you basically became a really good poker player and got really successful. Yeah, well, yeah, I'd say, like, relatively. Like, there's... It's, okay. uh It's, um... Like, I got to... I, I did well for, like, a few years, and I was a, like... Yeah, I guess, okay. That, <clears throat> that sort of ties into my whole, my whole, like, overall journey, but basically is around, uh... Probably, like, 2000 eight when i started like i went to university basically and i and i came home and uh, i had a summer job at a uh, uh like the local um hydro plant like nuclear uh, power and uh that's where like everybody from where i grew up like works um worked and works currently like my like my my sister and and her husband and stuff work there right now um, that's like sort of the where everybody does like the typical life cycle of somebody who grew up in in the rural area I was from because it's, it just hires a ton of people. Um, and I got a summer job to, there. And and for most people, that's actually like sort of the dream is like you got get into the hydro plant, like the nuclear plant, and that's like right. a really it's a really good 
pay, really good benefits, all that stuff. <clears throat> um, but I worked there for a summer as, as an intern and, and I just like hated my life. I was just like, and all I could think about, I remember being like, like I'd get home from work and I wouldn't have energy to like work on music. I basically was like, I got to find a way to make money so that I can scratch more. If it was my main motivation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, uh, right around that time, one of my high school buddies, uh, played an online poker tournament and he won like, I think like $2,000 or something. Um, and then, and that blew my mind. Like that you could even win like any money. I, 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 because before that I was like, oh, it's like a scam. Like they just steal all your money. I didn't realize that it's all regulated and like, like they, they can't really scam you. Like, like they, they can, but not, not directly. Um, so, uh, they, so it's like real poker. It's like, just like playing in a casino and yeah, uh, my buddy sent me $50 just to try it. And then I, I was playing like really cheap games, like 25 cent or something buy-ins. And, um, I started like studying it cause in my head, like I was like, maybe I can just like make enough at poker and quit my job and, and scratch all day. Uh, and yeah, so that, that was my plan. And so I started, like, I went to the bookstore and I got a bunch of like poker theory books and I started studying it. I, I, I was reading the books like at lunchtime at work. Um, and probably actually when I was supposed to be working, um, as well. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I just like, like was just trying to get better at it. There's a lot of math and like odds and stuff. It's actually way less, uh, um, less cool uh than the movies make it out to be it's not like this romantic like thing where you like uh just stare into someone's soul and figure out what cards <laughs> they have it's not like that at all it's like like you have spreadsheets of of odds and and like uh and you basically just memorize certain situations that happen a lot and that gives you like uh, and then you can start to infer like what your odds might be in other situations um but basically uh I, I started doing that and then the the thing was like uh i that summer i i probably like i started with 50 dollars and i probably ended like with 50 dollars. i didn't make any money and then went back to university and and i kept playing and i kept like i was just like really interested in it um it's still like one of my favorite games to the, to this day i love poker uh -huh. always played it with buddies that's how i got into it was playing with buddies in high school and then <clears throat> um some time through that year, I stuff started to make sense, and I started like working it up, and I, you know, turned fifty into a hundred, and a hundred into two hundred, and kept going up. And then by the next summer, I, I was up to like uh, still still not that much, but I was up to like around like five thousand dollars or something. Yeah, and um, which like five thousand dollars a year is not very good, but <laughs> um, but it's sort of in poker, it's somewhat exponential or like it doesn't just grow because you, as you get more money, you play higher stakes and stuff. Yeah. So I was probably playing like instead of 25 cent games, I was playing like $50 games or something. Um, and yeah. And then basically like, I forget the exact moments. There's a few like, like moments, but I won like a, a uh, an online tournament where, you get a ticket for a live tournament and I, I, it was in Australia. And so I won my buy in there 
and then uh like i i probably won it in like a hundred dollar game but the buy-in to the tournament was like i think six thousand dollars or something um, wow but you have to actually get in the money you have to cash in the tournament to get anything um and luckily i ended up getting like um like uh uh 17th or something um out of like whatever a thousand people and so i ended up making around like twenty thousand dollars or something um and then so suddenly i was at like twenty five thousand dollars how much i made or whatever and that was enough to where i was i sort of was like not really trying to balance it or like just play like in my spare time i was like oh i have enough money i can like play um like the tournaments that i want to play um online not really have to worry about like losing all my money because like you know it's all about in poker a big part of it actually is less than your skill or anything is is managing your bankroll like you want to make sure you have at least 200 buy-ins for whatever you're going to play so if you're going to play a hundred dollar game um, you need like twenty thousand dollars. So um, this is, but this this is based on your chance of winning and and what your expected return will be on that investment. Yeah, uh, yes, it's based on mostly uh, variance. So um, if you're playing tournaments with about a thousand people with a typical payout structure um, where they pay fifteen percent of those people, um, it's, it's like sort of complicated, but. But if, if you're playing an average thousand person tournament, um, it's very, very common, no matter how good you are, to eventually lose like a hundred times the buy-in. Like it's very common to lose like, so if it's a hundred dollar tournament, you can expect, even if you're really good, to lose uh, at some point, go down $10,000. Um, right. that's like sort of a simplification, but you have to, um, the, one of the biggest things is, is being able to have the money where you're not, where you can, uh, absorb that loss and still keep playing because the expectation is that you're mathematically going to win eventually. Like, you know, that, yeah. that if you can withstand the variance without going broke, then you can keep playing. Um, so anyways, I, I had enough of a bankroll finally to like uh, to withstand the variance. And then basically I, I, I had the, uh, like, I remember like a few months, like when, when I realized that I could like play like professionally as a job was when uh, like I, there's a month where I made uh, like $10,000 in the month. And then the next month I did it again. And the next month <laughs> I did it again. I did three months in a row. Um, and then like it didn't, it, I had a couple months like where I didn't do as well, but just having those like three months, like that short run, I was like, oh, this is a job now. This is not like, I'm not playing. Like I'm, I'm actually like, uh, I can actually do this. Um, so yeah, I started like getting into it. I was, um, I was a, like a, what they call a tournament player. He was like, there's a bit of a connotation that like, if you play tournaments, like you're you're a dumber player you're not it's not like less skilled or something there's more luck involved because you have to beat a thousand people kind of thing right. um but uh it's sort of like a it's very you've got to be like somewhat of a sick person or or just very emotionally stable to be able to uh like i said like absorb like potentially hundred 
buy-in losses and stuff and those big swings. But uh, luckily, that's like probably one of my best skill sets is that I didn't get emotional when I was playing. I was very like mathematical with it. Um, and yeah, I just played tournaments. Um, and and I started, um, I basically like <clears throat> um, started only taking classes like part-time because I was making more money at poker than than I would have got with any any job with my degree as a philosophy major. <laughs> so so like probably making any money is more than I would make with that degree. But uh, as as like you know, there's not really much sense doing school full time when I'm like you know strike while the iron's hot. Um, yeah. But yeah, in the end though, like long story short, I ended up um, uh, playing for a few years. Um, I won a, a couple like what they call Sunday majors. Sunday were always the online tournaments. Um, I, I won one for, um, about like a hundred thousand dollars Canadian, um, in one day, which is pretty good, obviously. But that's like, that, that's like the most ever, like it, some people think like they hear that and they're like, oh, like I, you know, must be like a millionaire or something, but it, it doesn't work like that. Like that's like your one day of the whole year that you do really good. And then I had days where I lost tons of money like i lost five figures in one day multiple times um didn't you get a load of money taken off you at customs once oh man yeah that's a that's a that's a crazy story i've actually never ever publicly talked about that story i wrote a post in in like the private digital vertigo forum and i've i i tell people i talk about it all the time we can take it out of the edit if you want. That's not a problem. No, I, I'll I'll talk about it. I I have to um, like it involves other people, so I have to like sort of. Uh, Don't worry about it then. No, I I can I can I just have to like like sort of talk about it in a certain way. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Winter DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from winterdj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out SureShotShop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. Basically, yeah, so essentially, like, long story short with poker, I, I had a few good years. I got up to, like, they have rankings for the world, um, like the tournament players and I got up to like 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 the top fifty in the world uh for online tournaments. Um so it was like which is like 
you know, there's tons of people better. Like I like in there's people who don't play online too. So that that maybe put me in like the top 200 for tournaments in the world or something, which is good, obviously. But there's bigger fish. It wasn't like you know, I'm not like nobody knows who I am in in poker in the vast poker world, right? Um, but for a moment, I was, I was doing really good. Um, but then, yeah, there's a few things that happened. So this is all when I was saying like DMC wasn't in Canada. There's no competitions or anything. So that's probably part of the reason I was putting more into poker. But then um, something happened where I played in a tournament in the Bahamas. Um, and it basically like... I I got a big reality check. I essentially got like uh, shaken down like by the authorities. Like you always hear stories about that, right? Like when people are traveling and like police in like Mexico or something are like, you know, going to arrest you, but you give them 50 bucks and then they go away. Um, I sort of had like, I would say one of the like more extreme worst case scenarios of that where... Um, yeah, basically, um, uh, I was traveling with, with other people and essentially they, 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 they're trying to say that, um, the amount of money that, that is traveling with, um, should have been like declared in a different way kind of thing. Um, because of how many people I was traveling with, like, basically you're like, depending on what borders you're crossing, either you have to declare uh, like the money that's on your person or the money that you're traveling with as a, a party of people and stuff like that. Like it, every border is different in the world. I didn't really know that. And, uh, and in retrospect, I, uh, again, like I was just being shaken down. It probably wasn't actually the law. Um, Bahamas is a really nice, beautiful country, but it's also like, sort of a third world country or at least like aside from like the resorts and stuff like that is a rough place right like there's some harsh harsh ghettos and and behind the scenes like they're they'll, they'll still like try and get you for for all your worth and so basically i they actually ended up uh putting me in jail there and then i went to court uh and they ended up finding me again like this wasn't this isn't a legal thing but even if you don't declare stuff and you're you're trying to avoid declaring which which makes no sense as a canadian because there's no taxes on on gambling winnings so there's no reason to not declare it really but regardless uh they like even if you break the law on purpose uh they can find you something like like 10 percent of what they confiscated or 15 percent um and they actually find me a hundred percent, which uh, I'd done well at the tournament there. So they find me like almost twenty thousand dollars as a fine, right? Yeah, that's, that's like sweet. Thank you for for a twenty thousand dollar fine after I've already like been thrown in jail and missed my flight and like all this stuff. But at that point, I was just over it. I was like, whatever. I I just want to get home. Yeah, um, it sucks, but it's also like. Uh, I was doing well enough that I was, it wasn't changing my life. It just, it just sucked. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but then, um, the story gets like a lot crazier. That was like not even remotely the worst, but essentially, and this is the part that like 
I, I didn't tell people or I was like wary about telling people for the longest time because at the end of the day, like it, for me, I, it seems like, like, I don't feel like a, like I'm anything that happened in the story makes me a bad person. Like if I, even if I didn't declare and I was trying to somehow like weasel around, it doesn't matter. It's not like a moral, moral thing, but for some people out there, if you break the law, like you're a bad person kind of, or people judge you. Right. And so yeah. I didn't want people to know, like, and there's a, a period of time when, when I thought, when I wasn't sure, like, if I had a record, if I could go to the States or anything like that, I had to like go through all this stuff. Um, like when I was getting my US visa, um, I don't have a record by the way. It's not, it wasn't, it's not a criminal charge. So like anything, but anyways, I didn't tell people this. Um, but anyway, I, I, I like, uh, ended up getting thrown in, in a refugee camp for, for five days. Um, and that was like the scariest, worst thing that's ever happened to me. I would say like, um, like on a, on a personal level, at least like, um, I, I was in this place where, uh, yeah, there was like all sorts of stuff happened. That's like beyond the scope of this. Some stuff I still don't even really like love to talk about. Um, but like I saw like, uh, people who essentially like were like sicker than I've ever seen, knocking medical attention. There's no clean drinking, drinking water. Um, I had to bribe guards multiple times for, for clean water and stuff like that. Um, you know, at, at like, uh, it, it, like crazy amounts. Like I, I think I had to, like, I luckily had money from, uh, like they, they confiscated all my money, but one of my friends, um, bailed me out and and when you show up in court you get your bail money back um uh and basically i had that money um so i i was you know fortunate enough that i could bribe guards that's a weird thing to be fortunate about but uh, like i uh got like clean drinking water because they didn't like everyone was just drinking from a hose in the dirt and stuff um and they and they fed people like um like I would I would estimate like 700 calories a day like um uh is really messed up and and yeah. basically I ended up like coming back home um and uh and I didn't go back to school that semester and and I actually like um had multiple phone calls with uh embassies uh the United Nations like multiple like they called me multiple times they called me uh, because basically the place I was at this camp is, was a very bad place and, and it's known to be bad. And most of the people that go there are actual refugees. Um, and when they get out, they get deported and like, you can't contact them. Like they don't have the internet. They don't have a phone potentially. Like there's no, like there, you don't, you can't, you don't have anybody to talk to, to be like, Hey, what, what's the situation in this place? Like, is it humane or whatever? So they mm. called me because I'm Canadian. So they can call me up and be like, Hey, we heard that this place was like violating human rights. Is that the case? And I'm like, yes, it was terrible. It's Jesus. like, yeah, literally like, like th this, this isn't my words. Like, I, and I don't want like anyone to, to twist this or make make it seem like I'm making light of this, but there's, there's when I was looking up this place after, um, there's people saying it was a modern day concentration camp. 
Um, yeah. And there had been people who died there, like multiple people. I, I saw people who potentially like probably didn't make it out. Like they're like, they like, you know, how many days can you eat 700 calories a day or something like that? You know, it's like a bad, bad place. Anyways, <laughs> so that, that's a, a, a heavy, heavy part of this journey. But how it relates to DJing is, is I came back um, and I, I like totally that, that changed my whole perspective on a lot of things. Um, but most specifically, I would say with money where it was the time when I was probably like the wealthiest in my life and also like the most like is the scariest, like saddest, like is the time when I, I, I had moments when I was there, it was only five days, but five days in a place like that, it's, it's a it's long like, time. It like I had PTSD. I came back and all my yeah. facial hair fell out, you know, like there's a long time I couldn't grow a beard like I have now because, uh, my, my, I had huge patches had fallen out from, uh, just from being there and uh, going like through that experience. Then? Um, it, it was alopecia, but it's, it's like a, like, I guess you apparently from experience you can get from, uh, being in a traumatic situation. Yeah. Um, and, uh, because it's something I never had before or since like it, it lasted about like, uh, two years maybe. And then, mm. then it was all good. Um, but, um, it was like the time I was the wealthiest, but I had this situation, like I was in there and like. That's like, I had moments where I was like, I would like pay whatever. I would pay all of the money I have to get out of this place. Like, like, cause there's times when I was like, not even sure. I'm lucky to be from a country where I have an embassy. I have play like people who like, they can't just, well, they probably could have just kept me there indefinitely, but it's a lot harder. Whereas there's other people in there who I met, who I talked to, who had been there for a year and a half, you know, like they'd been there for, and I was like, am I going to be here for a year and a half? Like that, that's the, is the scariest thing. Um, and so when I came back, I was like, man, like they say like money doesn't buy happiness. And, and I didn't, you know, that was like, whatever, that's like a cliche saying. But then I, I sort of realized I was like, oh, like, like basically there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> like where, um, you know, when you're at your worst times or whatever, like that's when it's like, oh, you know, what is like having money like obviously there's there's lots of things you can do with it and it and it's if you have no money it's it's a lot worse but there's a balance right and then i i sort of realized like i didn't really want to focus on poker and like for me poker was just making money i wasn't passionate about it it wasn't what i loved to do um and and i it took me back to like when i first got into it like i was trying to get into poker because I wanted to stay at home and scratch all the time. And so like for me, and this is probably part of like me dealing with like what I went through, but I really immersed myself in music, turn dualism. And uh, yeah. And like, I guess like <clears throat> this is the part of my story that is because I haven't talked about it. People don't totally understand, but basically this happened at the start of 2012 when like in January, 2012, I was in a refugee camp. And then the end of that year, like October, September, that's when I won my first world title. And I think there's a big correlation with those two things where I came back and like, I really needed to 
immerse myself in something and like i realized i couldn't just like let that experience like just completely like mess me up for a long time or something Mm -hmm. i had to like work on something i had to like get my thoughts away you know and and i I spent a long time like trying to do um as much sort of humanitarian related stuff with that and trying to help people and like you know embassy related things like trying to uh deal with that um but i i realized like that i couldn't just do that 24 7 it's it's hard it's a hard thing so yeah because because that's that's something that's gonna remind you of what you've been through as well isn't it that's that's not going to give you a form of escapism from that memory that that that's probably part of it and then the other part was that i felt like after like a couple months of like trying to do a lot of stuff i realized like uh there's a lot of things you have to (laughs) jump through like um and uh basically you don't have that much control like it's really hard to do anything like to like there's a lot of like government organizations between and in that situation i was sort of dealing with like basically the the government of the bahamas sort of covers it up and Mm. and it's like a person versus like a government that has a vested interest in like people not really knowing about this place not really like being able to like do much about it um and like eventually it just feels like like you can spend hundreds and hundreds of hours like working on trying to do something about it and like literally you're no further ahead and that's the part i feel like where it's like you have to or i had to basically um make sure that i wasn't just like gonna you know go crazy and have a breakdown because i was like i can't do anything about this you know i I like to feel like i did help you know certain people and stuff like there's certain you know i i had like uh yeah I, I basically tried to remember as many names and things of people and where they're from as i could and and call people and and do what i could i know i know for a fact there's a, a couple of people who uh got out and reached out to me after and stuff so that's amazing at the end of the day i had to get back to like my life in general and and yeah music was that and yeah basically like from that 2012 was like the most laser focused that i was on like music and turntablism probably the most single year of the most improvement that i had because i you know i was like just like trying to do that and not like uh, I, I part of it too probably is like like you, now now it, it's been so long at this point that I still get back to like times when you're just not motivated or whatever and you're getting distracted by things but I feel like at that time I was like like there's still this looming like feeling of like what if something else happens and like you can't do music what if it gets taken away again sort of so you like are like okay i'm gonna really work hard right now in case i end up in another refugee camp or something i don't know (laughs) but like that's not obviously like that realistic but in my head is like like that helped motivate it's like what i'm here now i can like do what i love and like what i wanted to do and i can just like really work on that with full concentration so your first battle um sort of world title and that was the battle for world supremacy right which is 
a, effectively a knockout tournament of of um, DJ versus DJ. Yes. Rather than rather than the the DMC, which is the more um, more widely known one, which is which is say sort of ten in the final with judges scorecards and stuff. This yeah, is literally. It, yeah. <laughs> knockout. Yeah, like the the actual DMC is a little bit more of like a it's like a showcase where each person does six minutes. Yeah, and you might have like twenty people in a row that all do six minutes, and they just pick the winner um, with scores like kind of like I don't know like gymnastics judging or something probably like that'd be yeah. a comparison. Whereas like yeah, the supremacy is a tournament, and you have to beat a single person, a single national champion. Like you're all representing your country, and then you have to. Yeah, come come out on top like through the through the tournament. Um, and so, did you do the Canadian? Was there a Canadian battle for supremacy first? So for Canada, um, because we had sort of a, a a scene that was like a little bit <clears throat> on life support. Um, basically, I won the the six minute showcase battle, and if you win that in Canada, like you uh, can do both world finals. So how? How did it feel winning that first Canadian title then? Because that's a big deal. So I actually won my first Canadian title in 2011. So this is another, this like cut, we was in chronologically got like uh forayed from this in the story. But at the end of 2011, um, they announced the Canadian final, first one in three years. And then is really short notice though, is only like three months or something. And I had no expectations because I'd never really placed at a battle before, let alone won one. And and I remember like entering the local city one in a city called Hamilton. Um, I entered that one because there, there's like Toronto regionals too, but those are tougher usually. So I entered Hamilton, and uh, and I remember specifically like my goal was like I I hope I can get top five, like that'd be sick. Because um, I'd never done anything in competition so any sort of result would be sweet um and then i entered and uh i ended up winning the the regional and that blew my mind and then i was like okay i guess i'm like going to nationals now and then uh went to nationals and i again i was sort of like i hope i get like top five or something but then i ended up winning that as well and that and then the whole like Bahamas thing that was all within like the span of a few months really like I did that and then that happened and both those things like the winning winning the first national title from like never winning a competition before at all uh, a few months earlier that was like gave me a bit of like a realization that I could DJ for a living sort of or I could I had some shot at it that's kind of like the experience you have with the poker then when you thought hang on a second this could be full time yeah, except with with poker, it was like I had no success when I was thinking that. I it was a pretty brain dead idea. But then with <laughs> D, DJing, it was like uh, I it was retrospectively is like I I won some stuff, and then I was like, oh, right, because I I guess like because there was no competitions for a few years, I had no real reference. I didn't really know like, oh, am I good? Like, how good? how good am I compared to these people in this city or anything? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're actually like the best in the country. And then for me, like from my perspective, that was sort of like came out of nowhere. But then as soon as I that happened, uh, I started getting booking offers like after 
in university, I was basically just a bedroom DJ. And then I started getting people being like, hey, can you play our show and stuff? And so, yeah, I kind of went from not really playing any shows to like, like headlining some shows that, and it seemed like I didn't really earn it in, in some ways. Like I didn't really work my way up the ranks. It was like very quick. But after I won, this is a really weird moment at the time, but uh, I won the, the Canadian final in 2011. And then when they were like presenting me the word, they like, do you have anything to say? And then like, they gave me the mic and I was like, yeah, so I'm not going to go to the world final. And then like people were like, what? And basically I, I didn't go that year because it was short notice. I'm always critical of myself, but I, I feel like in not like a unnecessarily humble, but more so like I feel like I can be fairly realistic with the stuff I make. Um, and I was like, if I go the worlds with this routine, like I'm getting crushed. Um, and I would have, cause there's like, as you, you know, like some of these guys like Chris Carnes and, uh, Izzo and, hey. uh, Richie Roughtone, you know, it's like, it, like I can't make a routine in two months and hang with those guys. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I'm not going to the worlds. So second place in Canada went to the world final. Um, so then, uh, and it was like this like mini controversy in Canada. I basically got stripped of my title because I didn't, wouldn't go. And they don't talk about that anymore. But but at the time, they're like making. They made me go back to the regional, so I had to win the local battle again uh, instead of defending. And yeah. yeah, and then I won the regional, won the nationals again, and then I won supremacy right after. And and for me, that was like a bit of uh, also like a bit of a validation, I guess, that I made the right decision by waiting another year because I wouldn't have done that the year before I wasn't, wasn't ready. Yeah. But then I did that. And then I was a bit of a moment of like, people are like upset about that. And it's like, I felt like I knew all along they didn't really understand that, you know, like people who are just watching and like just fans of like the competition, they don't really understand like how much effort it takes. And they don't understand that I knew best that I wasn't ready and that, yeah. you know. So this is effectively the start of your peak as a battle DJ. Yeah. So you've won seven world titles in various, or across various organizations and formats. Yep. Um, so how long was that over? Was that over, say, three years or something? It was about 2012 to 2015 was the main part of it. The timeline of, of titles and stuff was 2012. I won DMC Supremacy, and then I went to Poland and won IDA uh, like two months later. Um, and then 2013, I uh, I won Canadian DMC again, but then got second in Supremacy. I didn't defend my title. Richard Ruffthorn took me out from the UK, and then in the six minute, uh, I got maybe fifth place or something. Um, but then I did defend IDA in Poland that year, 2013. Then 2014 was like, it was like a dark time for, for me battling because I I think I made every world final and I got second or third in every world final in every category, like teams, everything. And I didn't win anything, um, which like, again, it's like, it's, it's this glass, half empty, glass, half full, yeah. like where... Uh, some people would see that as a, a very successful thing, like being second and third in the world. But 
having come from winning three world titles, that was like a disappointment. I felt like I was supposed to, I was like, I felt like I should have been the favorite. I was supposed to win and I like failed kind of. So then 2015, that was the main year where I won DMC online, DMC teams with Brace and finally won the six minute, which is the most prestigious uh, title, I guess. Um, <clears throat> so I won three all that year. That was sort of like a response to 2014 after like 2014 when I didn't win anything. Again, I went really, really hard into practicing and training because I was like, uh, I just wanted to sort of leave it all on the table. Mentally at that point, I was sort of starting to check out of competitions. I was like, I don't want to be just like judged for stuff. I just want to make music and art and not be judged for it you know like because that's not really what it's about um and it's sort of stressful and you spend all year working on like six minutes of material which is like a lot of time to do on that so i was like i'm gonna leave it all on the table and yeah luckily it paid off so i actually won stuff because i feel like i was done even if i didn't win anything so um yeah so something that's interesting with the poker and the and the competitions they're both things that just require an absolute steel nerve yep yeah they do (laughs) do you get a buzz out of that testing of nerve or did you at times yeah so i remember this is actually a funny like going back to the forums digital vertigo i remember after one of my battles i think it was like 2011 like the regional even though i won i like messed up a lot of my set i wasn't like happy and i I remember like basically like i think i basically made a post being like how do you deal with stage fright um and like and i was serious for a moment i was like seriously like maybe I should go to the doctor and he can give me like, there's some medication like for stage fright and stuff that um, like classical musicians sometimes take. Mm-hmm. I was like, maybe I should get that because my stage fright is so bad. I was so, so nervous, like almost like going to get sick while I'm performing. And yeah, so like at the start, it wasn't like a an asset. It wasn't something I enjoyed or anything. But then I got experience with it after I did it a few times and after i won the the first canadian title and i started getting booked for shows and just playing live more i started to just get more comfortable with it and then um yeah and then i i just uh i realized like it's something like that i like doing i i needed to sort of find my mindset for it because i think like for myself as critical as I am about my own material and performance, I realized that I had to fight that and block that out completely when I'm performing. I can't, I can't perform and criticize while I'm performing. I can't be like, Oh, you messed that up. Like you should, uh," you know, that's what I was doing though. I was like overthinking in the moment. But then once I like got out of that and realized, like just accepted, like, um, mistakes and and i actually like part of it was after seeing videos of me performing and seeing my mistakes on video and realizing that almost always they're like 
not nearly as bad as as they are in your head like in my head it's this devastating like performance ruining thing and then in the video it's like literally like one beat it's like one second of mistake and then you recover and like in 10 seconds they don't even remember that you made a mistake right but so once i realized like oh most of my mistakes nobody even knows that i messed up and like when you're beat juggling sometimes people think you're messing up anyways when you're doing it perfectly so so i was like it's kind of like that thing with anxiety where or embarrassment where embarrassment lays into anxiety and effectively your body's physical reaction is as if like for a cave person they had a tiger staring them in the face that's about to eat them you know so so you can it's like you can blow things out of such proportion just because of how your brain's wired and stuff yeah it's like you think about an embarrassing thing happening to someone in the street say someone slips on something or whatever yeah that is not a big deal to anyone else but in that moment for that person at that time it's the the worst thing in the world yeah exactly that's the that's exact same thing where um you know you you blow things up in your head especially with performance where it seems like you know if you do something a little bit a little bit off not as you intended it just like um seems like it's that it is way worse and stuff but yeah i eventually like realized that that's not the case and that i was kind of thinking about it too much and and worrying about it too much in the moment rather than just like trying to think about the the actual thing i was doing like being more i guess like more present in the performance and yeah thinking about hitting the next thing rather than the part i just messed up before yeah i suppose that the thing it got me thinking about when you were saying is like i used I, i for a long time i had jobs i didn't particularly like so i'd always be going for job interviews and i'd have good ones and bad ones and i got to the point where like some people just absolutely hate job interviews I got to the point where I quite enjoyed him. And I've like, I mean, I've had job interviews. I had one where I got shown out of the door after five minutes because I was convinced in my mind I couldn't get the job. I didn't deserve it. And I was just, my body language was all off. I was with the MD of this company. I totally wasted his time by even saying I'd go to this. I I sent him a message to apologize afterwards. But that's just one example. But generally, like, I just got to this point. I just really enjoyed being that pressure of trying to sell yourself into someone like that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I eventually like in begin to, and still do enjoy like performing live. And, um, and I think it became like, like a strength through competitions and stuff, um, where, um, I feel like I, I found like my headspace where, where, I dealt with it well and it, and it became like, um, more excited about it than nervous. Um, and, uh, and sometimes I'd compete against people who who hadn't found that headspace and that's an advantage in like a, the DJ battle world is like some Uh. people get nervous and if you don't get nervous, then that gives you like a, an edge. Um, and yeah, similar with poker though, for sure. Like there's a huge amount of like, like nerves, um, that can be, that that can be people's downfall but um yeah for me for poker it's like i always had the sort of mathematical thing to fall back on where if i knew that i was making the correct decision 
then it didn't seem like like if it's mathematically correct to bluff all my money away then i was fine with it and that that was good for me like not doing it emotionally um yeah i suppose with that with that losing a hand is part of the process yeah if you if you're playing it with the odds exactly it's like sometimes it's it's correct to make a decision where you know you're going to lose 75 percent of the time like objectively mathematically but if there's enough money out there to be won then like even if you only win one in four times but you win 10 times your money then it's it's yeah. correct so like yeah it's uh yeah and with poker too i i played literally millions of hands like you play online you play like 30 games at once you don't just play one game like i'm playing 30 at once decision a second kind of thing right um, and you get kind of desensitized to it or like yeah it's like like i think it's it's funny like when i play with like friends or or people who play at casinos and stuff even because there's no way you can even get that many hands in your lifetime in live settings they it's too slow but people like they'll like have a situation where they got like unlucky like somebody went in with seven two and they, they they beat my aces and they like remember that for their whole life and mm. for me i'm like that's happened hundreds of times the most unlucky thing that could ever happen that i've seen that so many times that it doesn't even matter anymore it's like yeah you know um so just just to go back to back to the timeline then when you started playing out having yep. this status of being a national champion was that a totally different pressure then because like you say you've only been in the bedroom so you're not known for any sort of genre or oh, any sort of style like that must be pretty pretty scary it's tough because one of the weird things with dj competitions is you you get a lot of um a lot of people knowing you for like a, a routine that that a lot of people can know from you could be like five minutes long or something but then you never get booked for five minutes you have to play like 90 minutes or something <laughs> usually yeah. um and so people don't really know what to expect um and you don't know what people expect of you and i feel like almost sorry for anyone who booked me like the first year because uh there's a lot of like experimenting on my part where yeah. Um, definitely the first sets I played, I would just do, I would just scratch for like an hour or something. Right. I would just like do like, like routines and just be like nonstop, like pedal to the metal. Um, and then I realized like, oh, this is like too much. I'm overdoing it. And then I went the complete other way. I went to, I played a couple sets where I just mixed and I didn't do any routines. But then the, the thing is for me, the reason people are coming to watch me instead of like any other DJ that's playing at your local bar every week is that they want me to do some fancy stuff. So if, if I don't do any, they're disappointed because of that. So it's like people are disappointed if you do too much, but they're also disappointed yeah. if you don't do enough. So it took a while to find this balance of like where, like how much um, technical stuff should I do? And I like doing that too. So for me, I guess it was like how, like, is is like what's the most i can tastefully put in and 
it took me a long time and I, I think it 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 changed like I'm still refining it like every time I play every tour I go on I'm from the beginning of the tour to the end I've I've refined like the balance of what I'm doing um and I, and I feel like there's there's times like certain years even where people are just way more into scratching or way more into beat juggling um and it goes in waves sort of and DJs in general talk about crowd reading um, usually in in the sense of like so- song and track selection but I think there's crowd reading in terms of like technique and performance like how much people want and what they're into and who knows why like I, I feel like maybe like just certain years there's videos that come out that get people more interested and more people in the scene have watched like some people just like like they want to see beat juggling for some reason in a context that I normally wouldn't think that it would make any sense but they're like you know if people seem interested I'm gonna do it and yeah you you get this this feel for it over time I guess but yeah yeah awesome so from the battling then the 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 other key thing that I think is really interesting is how you've taken your success and then you've you've moved into being kind of a community leader within the scratch scene um so could you tell us a bit about that because it's i think it's really great that you're organizing these battles you're doing twitch mm-hmm. you're really helping yeah. people grow and you've got this massive dedication to to the the format and the art yeah yeah i guess um i took uh, at some point I'd, I'd wanted to take my uh hypercritical um the the you know doing my my uh grading from the message boards and, and do something <laughs> a, lo- a little bit more uh, constructive with it um but basically uh yeah at some point um it was around 2019 yeah 2019 i guess i started on twitch like quite a bit before the pandemic um where a lot of djs jumped on but Basically, um, around 2019, it'd been like about four years since battling, and I was mostly um, like just gigging and touring and and trying to doing everything that you do to make a living at DJing, like because you can't just battle forever. So you have to like, okay, now how do I make money? How do I survive off of this? So <clears throat> I was doing that, um, but then around 2019, I kind of like started feeling like. Um, with a lot of friends uh, and people I'd come up with through the scene, uh, it, it it became less about like, you know, when you're starting, it's like, how do you do this scratch technique? And like, how do you like flare? And did you see like the new D styles video and all this like stuff that is like, um, like kind of, it's like the nerdy stuff that is just like a, really about the art and nothing else. And that's like, it's all about the <clears throat> the music and the art of it. And I felt like it, for me, it sort of turned into like a lot of the people that I used to talk like that to, it became like, yo, how do you like, uh, you know, how do you like get more gigs and, uh, what's your EPK look like and, and where'd you get your logo done? And like, how much are you charging? And all this like business stuff that is not really about the art anymore. It's all about just like, how do you, how do we all like make money at it? Which is important, but I felt like I just started to feel like like it's becoming too much about that and then for me I needed an outlet that was just like more like 
grassroots about the art. And I, I found out about Twitch. Um, I'd been using it actually for watching producers and stuff around that time. And, uh, and I decided to, that I wanted to just like start streaming, um, like scratch lesson stuff and just like do tutorials essentially like live streams. Um, and yeah, I wanted to do that because, uh, I wanted to like get back in touch with like people who were still at the point where they're like just talking about techniques and a cool video they saw and like, you know, or a track or something like that and like the artistic stuff. And a lot of those people are like people who are like, it's not the people who are like established for like, like over a decade. It's the people who, who just started a couple of years ago. Those are the people who are like really, really passionate about it and like, that's what I wanted to get more back into and more in touch with. So yeah, I started doing the lessons and then, and then fast forward and, and the whole pandemic like, uh, ruined all gigs anyways, um, for a long time, even longer in Canada. I think we were, we were locked down for longer than U S and UK. I was playing like, like all my gigs for like end of 2020 and, and 2021 and stuff for all in the States. Um, but basically like, yeah, pandemic hit, no gigs. Uh, had to figure out, like, you know, I have been doing music full-time. I was doing scoring and stuff as well for a bit and, and DJing and just all things related to music. But then all of a sudden, like, I've got to figure out how to make money. And I'd already been doing some lessons, and I was doing Twitch. Twitch, for me, is, like, definitely a passion project. There's no money in, like, turntable lessons on twitch but uh i realized though that a lot of people were like they're stuck at home and and uh they wanted to like learn and take lessons so i started doing like private lessons on zoom and skype and stuff and i i started running a battle uh called flipper flop which is like it's sort of an idea of like combining a, a few different things I, th I thought would be cool but one of them is basically um uh, involves like the producers in the community. So anybody who makes beats and scratch tools, um, they basically submit all of their stuff on a Saturday at 5 p.m. And the DJs have 24 hours to make what they can. So it's sort of a, like a race against the clock a little bit. Um, they have to make a one-minute routine in, in 24 hours. Um, and it's also uh, sort of incorporating like an idea. I think a lot of like, like turntablist kind of like the idea of like um, people using the same sounds and same beats to compare and stuff. So you get yeah. people who are like kind of, they're not all using the same sounds and beats because it depends how many producers submit, but um, they're using similar like stuff. So you kind of get to see uh, given a small pool of music, like how are different DJs going to do different stuff with it? Um, so there's that. And then my favorite part of the, the battle is uh, I have, like uh, on Twitch, I have like the, the stream deck with buttons on it to cue graphics and stuff and I have a flip button or a flop button. So it's got like the sort of like, uh, you know, American Idol-esque like element where like if somebody does a routine that like my, my sort of gauge for it is if, um, if the routine wouldn't place at a local competition, like it would be in sort of the bottom of a local competition, then, then it's a flop. 
usually that means that somebody's doing, they have some sort of a mistake, whether it's offbeat or it's not in key or, um, or like, you know, it's, it's usually not if someone's like too simple, like if you're simple, but you're clean and everything is like solid, it's usually going to get a flip, but yeah, I have the flop button and that it sort of adds, I, I feel like a little bit of, uh, especially when, when there's no competitions and no live things, I was trying to be like, how can we simulate some of the pressure of a battle, you know? So giving people only 24 hours and giving them the flop button to work against, it gives them a little bit of like, you know, stuff to make them nervous. And that, that's I guess. awesome. It's, that's exciting yeah. as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Like it's, it's worked out well. Like I, I just did it to see how it go. And, um, and, and I run it in seasons, like a sports league. So there's eight regular season and then two playoffs every, every one. And it started out. And I think the first time I just like, was like, um, was I, I, I think I just offered a hundred dollars in like some scratch records. And then this last season we had, uh, 1700 us and reloop innovation sponsored prizes and stuff and this is the we just had the we finished season uh six so i've done it six six times in and the each one lasts about um it's weekly so it lasts like almost three months or something are, are any of the djs that have gone through that kind of carving a name for themselves now so the the very first champion who actually ended up winning the first three seasons and and i ended up banning him nice is the high which is in in flipper flop that's like the highest uh highest um praise that you can get is if you get banned just like in the, on the forums in a way. <laughs> <laughs> um the uh is dj delightful so like he's from bulgaria um but he ended up um like he won my battles and i think he said that he'd never won anything before and then he won flipper flop and and i think he's a good case of someone who maybe someone like myself uh where i think he was like already really really good and then he he just needed to win some stuff to like kind of realize that that he was and like he was definitely on the level already but one one flipper flop and then he entered dmc and he won the foundations category it's like an online only category that they had that was more like um like uh basically not using a whole bunch of like uh, buttons and effects and new technology, but keeping it more like the, the fundamentals. Sure. Um, so he won that category. So he's the world champion of that. And then he, he won another battle this for scratch music called cut to cut. And that's like, uh, they had a world championship as well during the pandemic. And so he, he like won two major battles. Um, and he also placed in, in a bunch of others too. And so, yeah, he had like a lot of, success um another kid um kevin adam indonesia he got second in red bull three cell um for indonesia and most recently uh the champ from just a couple weeks ago nago um from uh the netherlands they they've made the dmc and ida world finals so they're like world finalists two times so so like the the battle is not really meant to like target like these high level like beasts or anything but it seems like they're coming out and like there's been a few who either had success after or 
kind of simultaneously with doing it. Um, That's amazing, though, that what that what you've done has become part of their journey. Like, um, just just hearing you talk about battling, like I only ever did a few battles, never did amazingly in them. Yeah. But that's, what a great experience. I'm, yeah. I'm going to have that forever now. And, and they were awesome. You know, they were very yeah. scary. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you just learn about yourself when you do these things. For sure, yeah. It's, it's yeah, there, there's sort of a weird thing where it's like, a, a, it's where like music and sport kind of meet for like a DJ battle where it's a weird, yeah. like the idea of like competing with music is is sort of strange and and i you know i think if you think like too deeply about it it starts to fall apart and just be like nonsense but <laughs> but it's still like a fun thing and from like this hip-hop like kind of background it's it's cool to to do that and and i think in a way like it when 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 it's done correctly and when people are doing it for the right reasons it's it's just a really good like way of uh motivating yourself like having this external motivation that's not just like you being like a monk in your bedroom like trying to get better for yourself like you have this like something to go for and you also get like hopefully if you take it in a healthy way you get feedback on like where you stand and like if you're doing good if if things are on the right track i guess um because uh there's not all that many outlets where you, you know, especially without the message boards uh, anymore, uh, you don't have that like honest feedback and criticism um, yeah. necessarily. Whereas competitions, uh, like with flip or flop, I, that's actually part of it is I give everyone who gets flopped, I give them feedback on like, how do you improve and like what I want to see to make it a flip the next time. I'm, the last thing I want is for like people to like, sell their turntables after they get flopped that's like not the point <laughs> yeah. of it it's to give them actual like practical stuff but but even in in other competitions like just like you know there's something about like when you lose if you lose something it's like gives you a feedback like oh maybe you know it humbles you and stuff it makes you realize that there's more you can do and yeah that's a good that's a good thing it's good to be humble yeah it's, it's absolutely amazing and I read something, there was a book that I read that talked about how mentoring can actually energize the mentor and give the mentor as much benefit in a way as the mentee. So 100%. And, and hearing hearing the way that you're talking about it and the energy that you've got about it, it's really nice. Yeah. Um, so that brings us up to present day. So um, firstly, thanks very much for that. Thanks for sharing your story with us and, and thanks for sharing the level of, detail that you have because there's some pretty deep stuff to be talking about just before we wrap things up um where can people find you online and, and find the battles and everything where's the easiest place for them to get in touch or just learn more about the work that you're doing yeah so um basically like uh like so instagram um i'm just vect v-e-k-k-e-d that's one of the better places but like the most active right now is, is Twitch. Um, and that's uh, twitch.com slash vect scratches. Yeah, V-E-K-K-E-D and then scratches or the E-S. Um, and then, um, yeah, those are like the, the probably the, the two better better places. And then through Twitch, I have a Discord like chat room um, 
which is like for for a modern day message board experience is, is pretty good. I've like almost a thousand people in it, I think now, and lots of like. Well, cool. how easy how easy is it to get banned? How easy? Yeah, um, man. It's I'll pretty find out hard. tomorrow. It's pretty hard, actually. Yeah, you'll have to try and and see. <laughs> um, I don't know if we've banned anyone yet. Um, but uh, yeah, the Discord. Um, and then uh, I guess the last thing, like, I if anybody wants lessons, um, I since the pandemic, I you know been teaching on Zoom and stuff. Um, lessons at vec dot com, and uh, yeah, I can uh, school anybody on on whatever they want. Awesome, I might need to sign up. I'm very, very rusty. Oh, that's that's great. Well, it's, it's been absolutely incredible catching up with you. And Likewise. Hearing yeah. a lot more detail about your story. It's um Yeah, you got some there's uh, a lot in there. You it's got crazy. some exclusives, some exclusive stuff in there. I've been yeah, like I said, there's some stuff that I've I've sort of kept kept offline and just like didn't want to talk about for for reasons, but it's been long enough that Sorry. But yeah, just once again, this has been absolutely unreal. Um, <laughs> no, that's not good. Really engaging. And I think yes. we've got so much stuff to share with people. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you too. That's really fun. Right, good luck. Speak soon. Yep, beautiful. Right. Around, bye. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at Podcast. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon. Oh, that was nice.